0: Bye. man is full of strength, and a man of knowledge enhances his might. For by wise guidance you can wage your war, and in abundance of counselors there is victory. Proverbs 24, 5, and 6. Welcome back to another episode of The Serrated Edge, the show where I say things that you don't like and you keep coming back for more. Uh, I am once again joined by a very special guest. He is a husband, a father, uh, a pastor uh, in Batavia, Ohio, founder an author and Uh, I guess, a TV star now, if it's good to be a man, (laughs) and an all-around godly patriarch, Michael Foster. Thank you so much for coming on the show, brother.
1: Thanks for having me. Glad to be here.
0: So, uh, you know, uh, I think, as well as anyone, uh, that it seems like today our culture has painted a pretty poor picture of men, um, who and what we are, uh, that all of our inherent masculine traits are considered toxic or Uh, foolish. Uh, We see it on TV, right? That the husbands and the patriarchs of the family are typically uh, buffoons. And um, women have been consistently told now for decades that they don't need no man. Uh, And so I am hoping that we can provide some folks uh, with a biblical foundation to sort of fight back against this world's hatred of men and of biblical gender roles. So um, if you could define for us, at least according to the Bible, what is a man?
1: Yeah, I get this question a lot. I mean, a man is uh, one part of the binary that is mankind that was made in the image of God. So uh, <clears throat> that's what a man is. A man's designed by God uh, to bring glory to him. And he does that by exercising uh, dominion into this world and worshiping God. And that that is it, what it means.
0: Yeah, yeah, that's great. So, uh, in terms of masculinity, I guess could you lay out really what the main primary masculine responsibilities and duties are of men? Um, I know you briefly touched on taking dominion, but uh, if you could expand a little bit on on what men are expected of in terms of what God has laid out uh, in our creation.
1: Sure, I think you know they they sometimes call them the three P's. They're pretty helpful. Um, preserve or excuse me um, preside, protect and provide that's a, the, you know that's kind of I've heard Mormons use that and uh, oh yeah it's re- really popular on um, the art of manliness uh, website and podcast to but that's it's pretty hard to top that I think that's actually uh, right that God gives uh, authority to men right men are the leaders of society and with that authority comes responsibility. And that responsibility is to uh, create and build a world uh, where uh, women and children can flourish and do well. And uh, and so that's, we provide, and not just money and food, but provide the environment where uh, femininity can come into its fullness. <clears throat> so a guy that's working his butt off and, Buying a nice house and giving his wife the right appliances and the the food and tools and things she needs, she's able to take that that house and turn it into a home. Right, so mm-hmm. a house is mm-hmm. a building a home, is the atmosphere that's created in that that structure. So a guy he he provides for that, but he also protects it, keeps it safe. And so the world needs godly men. The world needs powerful men, uh, men of of virtue and character that could do all those things. And I think that's a pretty, we see those, um, we see those characteristics repeatedly emphasized throughout scripture. One place you can go to find them would be first Timothy three and and Titus Mm -hmm. one, when we're looking at the elders qualifications and elder qualifications are more or less uh, mature manhood, mature Christian manhood is what it comes down to. Uh, The only thing that, I would say it's unique in there is that they have the ability to teach others. I don't think Mm. that's a hardcore requirement of fathers though. Dads should be able to teach at some level. Right. Mm -hmm. And uh, so, yeah, if you, you see all those things, a man who manages his own household. Well, right. He's a guy that keeps his uh, children uh, in the faith in so much that he can by calling them to trust in Jesus, discipling them, you know, reading Scripture with them, disciplining them when they go astray. Uh, he's a guy; it's a one-woman man. He's devoted to his woman, um, and uh, and is able to take care of her and all those sorts of things. So you see those kind of three P's emphasized, taught uh, throughout all of uh, all of Scripture when referring to men. Yeah. So you can like look at what are the things that help me as a man uh, be excellent in those areas, right? And so it's really hard to exercise authority over anyone if you can't exercise authority over yourself. And so the basic starting point for all men is self-discipline and self-control, um, both in what he consumes, whether it's food or media, um, how he manages his response to things. So his, his emotions. So is he temperate, right? Is he, so there's, that's why I think I was like Jordan Peterson when they talk about, you know, clean your room what they're in essence doing is calling a man to take the most uh, near immediate responsibility that they can over that domain. And so that's why a big part of getting men to uh, be what God made them to be is getting them to take responsibility for themselves. And once you are able to take responsibility for yourself, then out of that comes the ability to provide for others. Right. And as a man, I don't just provide, I don't just provide resources in a physical sense, but I am the stabilizing force in my household. I am the, the uh, thermostat. I set the the warmth or the coldness in a home. And that comes down to me managing my own relationship with God, making sure that I'm casting off my cares onto Jesus. So I'm not weighed down with anxiety um, that I'm, I'm praying. So I have that peace in me um, so that way. When there's a crisis or uh, emotional meltdowns or explosions that I That doesn't toss me because I've already brought those things to the Lord, or at least I brought my own stuff, and I'm able to bring peace um, into that situation and say, all right, let's work through this together. So those are all the things that uh, play a major role in being what we would call a godly man.
0: Yeah, no, that's great. Now, in contrast then, uh, what is a woman? Just
1: pop – a woman <laughs> in all, uh, almost all the same stuff. She's uh, she's the other part of the binary that was uh, that belongs to mankind. Uh, she's uh, she's a female, so she has uh, all the biological realities there. That's a big part of her identity. Um, we will always be our sex because we believe in the resurrection. And the and if you reject, um, if you reject physical, biological, human nature, you are attacking key doctrines like the incarnation and the hypostatic union. Uh, Mm -hmm. You're attacking doctrines like the humiliation, exaltation of Christ. um, The fact that he is a redeemer and he is a human, all those things are up for grabs. If you reject enduring sexual nature, which is a uh, 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 irremovable component of human life of biological life. So a woman she is made second, and that's huge in scripture. Adam is first given this call to rule and reign. Uh, we call that sometimes the cultural mandate because as he does that, it will create culture. I like to call it the creation mandate because I think that just focuses – kind of roots it more in the, the wholeness of it. The cultural mm-hmm. – people just think like music, like things like that. And creation yeah. mandate is just man's uh, hierarchical position over the created realm. Um, so Adam's made first. God says, go do this. And then Adam's like, as he looks at all the animals and looks at the work that's been given to him, God helps Adam see that he can't do this by himself. Right. So a lot of times when we read God making a woman for Adam, we kind of read it in this overly romantic nature. Right. And obviously there is a deep. Uh, love, attraction, connection, all those things, because Adam's kind of his song or his poem at the end, Mine bone, my bone on my bone. But uh, the the immediate context is the work of the creation mandate, the work of, mm-hmm. of fulfilling those things. And so uh, it's <clears> – <throat> Adam can't fulfill the creation mandate by himself. It, it requires both sexes. And so the woman – Uh, her area of productivity is in helping the man and in raising up the next generation, right? And all the things that are entitled in there. So women are somewhat defined by their fecundity, their ability to be fruitful, right? To produce. And uh, and so women, that's a big part. That's why it's very hard on a woman if she can't have children. Uh, You see that throughout scripture, Rachel, like Give me children, or I die. Hannah crying, like just give me <laughs> a baby. I'll, I'll lend them to you, Lord. Uh, a woman will be saved through childbearing. Of course, that's talking about sanctification. It's calling call it about uh, giving herself to the, um, uh, the the creational design for her that has an attachment of of uh, suffering because of the curse. Mm-hmm. So, in bearing children. Uh, Then we see in Titus 2 that the older women are to call the women to be keepers of the home, to be lovers of their husbands, uh, to be good mothers, all those sorts of things. So a huge part of a woman is her industry and her fruitfulness. So for a woman, God uh, works through the man to provide resources, and the woman multiplies, magnifies that. And you see that play out pretty well in Proverbs 31. So you have a woman later in her life. Her husband's old enough that he's respected, that he can sit in in the city gates. Um, she now has all the skills and resources that she's able to go out and uh, she's able to go out and buy stuff and, and expand the boundaries of their household. So the man's kind of out there pushing the boundaries. He's like, it's like uh, if you imagine you're clearing a land of trees and then you're putting up the structure. And then the woman then comes Mm -hmm. in and cultivates it all the more. Um, Sometimes that's where people think a woman civilizes a man. Um, I would just say she does. She, what she does is she throws gas on the flames of civilization, right? That a man wants to tame the world around him, but the woman takes it to the next step. (laughs) And uh, so I, I hear people, you know, they have this idea that all bachelor guys have this house that just has like a couch in it and then like a TV or something or like a, a box. (laughs) Yeah. There are a lot of guys like that. And I was, there was a stage where I was like that, but I have a lot of guy friends who actually Mm -hmm. their houses are, you know, mahogany everywhere and just beautiful and got a game room or whatnot. Um, but when you add a woman into that, she, she'll transform that as well. She'll want to make it a place for children. Mm-hmm. She'll want to make it a place for hospitality. So I really think women tend to be defined by their ability to be industrious, uh, to be nurturers, to be be fruitful. Um, and you see that in their desire uh, of the career path they tend to choose right? Yeah. They want to be nurses. They want to be teachers. They want to be kind of a therapist or psychologist because they see that as a coming along and helping people. And so that's, those are some of the main components of femininity and and the kind of their feminine drives.
0: Yeah. Yeah. That's great. So given the differences between men and women uh, our different responsibilities our different tendencies, um, how how does that impact and, and what sort of, um, structure does that give to something like marriage?
1: Yeah, well, they fit together really well, don't they? Um, yes. <laughs> you know, these, these, these two sexes. Um, yeah, so the guy is out there leading and the woman is out there supporting. She's his XO. She's his executive officer. And, you know, when you look at Abraham and Sarah's household, you, you, Sarah's not like this damsel in distress or something like they're managing mm-hmm. a gigantic uh, operation that has you know 300 slaves and, and whatever um, or servants they're they're working together to do all that stuff. So I think um, a man is, again is I I do all this hard work and then I honestly I just hand it over to Emily like Emily pays all the bills. I don't pay the bills. I, I once upon <laughs> a time did. Uh, but, and now really, Emily doesn't really pay the bills. Our apps pay the bills. We've set them all up and, but yeah. she's the one that sat down and figured out why. Nab, you need a budget and how to set it all up. And remember we went from being behind a month to being ahead several months now because we pay, we, we're always paying, uh, not this month's bills, but the, the we're always a month or two ahead at least. Um, but, uh, she set that all up. So. Um, we work together in that sense, we work together in that you have to, you need a man and a woman to make a baby. Uh, I know that seems like basic, but we seem to be losing (laughs) hold of things like that. And that, um, when you think of one flesh, people, a lot of times think of the, the act of coitus, right? Like intercourse, but it certainly has in mind one of the greatest embodiments, like literal embodiments of one flesh, which is children right? You have Mm. two different people coming together to create a a whole new DNA strain, a whole new person that shares attributes for both parents. Um, Children need both a a father and a mother. And so one way they work together is that there's masculine fatherly nurture, which is a little bit different. You know, uh, like your kid falls down and hurts his knee like, oh, son, you'll be okay. Rub some dirt on it. Get up. Right. Um, And a woman might be softer. Sometimes women will say that too. If the kid's been a wuss for a couple, <laughs> you know, weeks, mothers don't want to raise uh, a little boy that's a wuss.
0: Um,
1: <laughs> but, uh, but they they play. There, uh, there's all that need for mothering and fathering. They get that together. There's the need for um, a sort of feminine warmth that is created mm-hmm. in a household. So they they all play together in, in ways. I think sometimes I it's so obvious. I feel bad. Like I'm a bad interview because I'm just going to say things that everyone already knows. But, but yeah, they work together to make children. Uh, They compliment each other in that way. Uh, My wife is a huge encouragement to me. I uh, will think very big picture. I'm a big picture person. And my wife is terrible at being a big picture person. She's very close. um, And so she compliments me in that way where sometimes I won't think about the immediate consequences of this big decision I'm making. And then we play off each other. I find that in a marriage, you tend to have that. I think those are general masculine and feminine temperaments. Women are a little closer. Sure. Men are a little bigger. I don't think it, there's cross types. In other words, something that goes against stereotype that might play out, but that that's helpful too. There's that just sharing of different perspectives and, and focuses. So
0: anyway. Yeah, yeah, that's great. Um, yeah, and, th- and that structure, uh, I think, is is uh, is titled probably the most controversial title seemingly in the marriage sphere today, which is patriarchy. Right? People don't like that term. Um, but th- there's a difference between something like patriarchy and then the coin term complementarianism. Um, what would you say are the main differing factors between those two particular spheres of of marriage structure?
1: Um. Well, they might, there might not be any difference. Okay. So it, it depends what you True. mean by it. So by, by the word patriarchy, we're talking about the natural rulership of, of men in all the higher uh, parts of society. So men are the leaders in church, uh, leaders in government, leaders in the home, and they always have been and they always will be there may be some sort of exceptional case, but even this very day when, when we get to things like the business worlds, the vast majority of CEOs are going to be met like in the 90, 90 percentile mm-hmm. easily. Um, the uh, same for board members on major companies, same for world leaders. Uh, you only get a queen if you don't have a King, right? That sort of thing. Right. And, <laughs> um, and so, uh, I will say patriarchy is uh, inevitable. There's no way around it. It's part of God's design of the of the creation. And it's always been that way. It's like, you can't deny it. It's been that way for thousands and thousands of years. And it's still that way. Even today, after years, you know, about 150 years of, of feminism of, of varying degrees, trying to mm-hmm. attack it. And you still can't, you still can't put it down. You know, it's just the nature of things. So, That's what I mean by patriarchy. And in that sense, patriarchy can be, since it's natural, it can come in an evil or, or good form, just like sex, heterosexual sex is natural. Uh, but, um, that doesn't mean every instance of heterosexual sex is moral or godly. Obviously, you can fornicate. A man and a woman are having heterosexual sex. That's normal and good in that it's heterosexual. But if it's outside of a marriage covenant, well, then that's wrong. Mm. So in the same way, patriarchy, it's natural, but it has to be exercised according to the design of God, God's word, yes. God's law. And you now complementarianism is a, a, a word that came out of – the kind of a discussion within the ets the evangelical theological society in the late 80s early 90s that gave uh, <clears throat> i created the danvers statement which is kind of a statement on sexuality it was really a compromise statement it was hmm. trying to bring these different views of sexuality like what can we agree like what how where can we create consensus and though and then down the line we'll work uh to kind of um flush this out. Okay. And so they end up focusing on really men's and women's roles in the church and in the home. They don't really touch society, which is crazy. Society is made up of a bunch of homes. So (laughs) why, why, like how does that not extend? So the home where we learn how we interact in every single way, the home is the basis for human interaction. Uh, how can a man be the leader in the home and the leader in the church where they worship? These are the two most important uh, structures in the life and that, and that doesn't work its way out to society. It's just irrational and weird to think that. So complementarianism doesn't really want to touch the society stuff very much. And uh, it's all about roles and it doesn't anchor the roles tightly in nature a lot of times, but some of the early guys did like you listen to early John Piper and me, like we don't, differ almost on anything when it comes to sexuality, very yeah. close. And so everyone acts like there's this patriarchal versus complementarianism thing going on. And there is in a sense that patriarchalism is going to talk about how uh, our sexual identity if you, or sexual nature extends to society. There's a tension there. But not all complementarians reject that, (laughs) you know. So it gets really, (laughs) uh, really difficult. Um, Do I agree with what the complementarians, early complementarians emphasized? I do. I just go further. Um, Mm -hmm. And I want to rest it on human nature and design and creation and and the created order. And I think it uh, it extends to all things. Um, So we've been critical. It's good to be a man – uh, was, the book was not, didn't touch it very much, but we've written articles and things that have been critical of complementarianism. And I've actually had Non kind of edit and reword some of them, Non, who's <laughs> my co, co-author, co because I'm like, eh, we should probably add a adverb there because I started meeting complementarians that really what I think the Bible teaches and nature teaches is what those guys believe. And so yeah. they feel like that I'm attacking them and I'm not, I'm attacking the other people that more or less took over the complementarian position and started to slowly gut it and make it egalitarian. And that's where we're at now where like you got women like Amy Bird was a great example. Um, hmm. Rachel Green Miller was another example. She was a editor for the Aquila report, which was a kind of important news site for the PCA Um Chandler started to do that. Tim Keller is probably the one that ruined it most, because he would say that a woman could do anything that an unordained man can do, and that he really made complementarianism into a the male headship into a tie breaking vote. Yeah, and I'm like, those are incredibly reductive. You're like trying to like gut it uh, as uh, from as much authority. And if you got something of authority, you gut it of responsibility. Authority and responsibility have a natural parity, and when you remove one from the other, it causes problems. To give someone responsibility but not the authority to do it, what? How can they get it done? To give someone authority, power, but not to anchor that into responsibility, well, then that leads to tyranny. So one mm-hmm. leads to slavery, and the other leads to tyranny, and they have to be kept together. And um, and so, authority and responsibility always have to be a parity. Well. Really, you see the modern versions of complementarianism putting all this responsibility on men, right? They've got to sacrifice, 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 but not giving them the authority to leave their homes. And so yeah. a lot of people have been pushing back against it uh, for obvious natural reasons. So that that's how I would tackle the issue. I would tell people like if by egalitarianism, you mean that we have equal essence before God, that man and woman are equally made in the image of God. I say, yeah, I, I subscribe to that. Right. Of course, that's not all they mean because they they turn equality into sameness. And if by uh, patriarchalism, you mean that there's a natural rulership of men that's built into the cosmos well of course i agree with that as well and by complementarianism you if you mean that men and women complement each other in the work of household building and and the work of the church but there's limits and roles well of course i agree with that too the devil is always in the details right yeah and (laughs) and in a social media age where people can barely pay attention for two seconds um it's just like adhd right um (laughs) Uh, it's hard to have meaningful conversations and also people just, um, they kind of run wild with statements you make, like, well, if you mean that, and that means this, and that means this, then you actually stand for that. You're like, Whoa, Whoa, that (laughs) kind of cascaded into a position. I never advocated for that. You're acting like is a natural consequence of something I said, but you took several logical leaps and that's what makes this conversation one that needs to happen, but a difficult one.
0: Yeah. Yeah, that's excellent. So I guess in light of all that, why then are Christian men, it, it seems, men in general, but I think Christian men to some degree, why are they flocking to guys like Jordan Peterson or like Andrew Tate, right? The These sort of uh, red-pilled, uh, super-masculine, patriarchal men, but without any sort of biblical or fundamental Basis by which to build those things on.
1: Well, there's a couple reasons. Um, anytime a crowd gathers, people want to know what's going on there. That's the reason number one. Uh, I think some of us downplay the power of the algorithm here. So uh, <laughs> the algorithm has will deliver up popular content, and uh, there's like there's all sorts of social media things going on that I don't care about, but I get delivered the content enough that I, that I know about it. Like there's this, um, there's this woman that she, she's almost naked just in a bikini and it keeps popping up in my feed. I'm like, what the heck is this about? Now I know some yeah. people are going to say, well, you know, the algorithm drives what you want. I don't want that. I don't click on that <laughs> stuff ever, man. Um, yeah. Well, why it's popping up is that this woman is not real. She is mm. AI. She's wow. not, and 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 uh, I, there's a lot of guys that I follow comedy and talking about how guys are so thirsty for female validation to connect that they're all like, "Oh, you're so hot, you're so beautiful, all these things." She's not real, uh, and <laughs> and I and one thing I noticed right away is if you one way you can identify AI for the moment is that they they cannot it struggles to produce. Fingers, hands, right. <laughs> and I did see that woman's hand do something weird. I was like, Whoa, what was that? And then, um, and I, and after like, this has popped up in my feed, like 10 times in the last 48 hours, I clicked on it to see what the comments were. And, uh, and that's when I realized, Oh, this is because this is this sort of AI. And it's, it's talking about how thirsty men are and how needy men are for fe- all that stuff. And that's why it's getting delivered to me. So Guys that are talking about self improvement, guys that are like following like influencers that are working out, or any sort of uh, keyword or a tendency, they're going to get delivered that content. That I feel mm. like we downplay that, like the guys, or the, the fact that there is a algorithm driving some of it. Now, guys are looking for this, right? So you add an algorithm that rewards that sort of behavior, plus guys looking for someone to teach them how to be a man. Like like we should not – like you don't teach a cat how to be a cat. It's got a feline nature, right? Our sexuality is natural. Since when do you have to teach someone to be their nature? You, You don't usually have to do that. So what you have is a society that has been so aggressive towards uh, God's design, both in men and women. Feminism is a rejection of the goodness of femininity. Feminism basically says to be, have value, you have to be able to compete with men in male mm-hmm. spaces and, and male valuation. Well, really, feminism is about a short bus as it comes because it really <laughs> uh, makes women – defines women by uh, their wage and their career height right? Their education, their way and that, and that's what that means to be a powerful woman. Like really, that's pretty simplistic. Uh, so but masculinity has been under attack for many, many, many decades. Uh, whether you're talking about methylphenol and Adderall, trying to pacify little boys into acting like the, the much more compliant restrained girls, at least in those early years, uh, building educational systems that, that uh, encourage that, uh, but downplaying the importance of competition and, mm-hmm. you know, uh, like participation trophies, like they don't care yeah. about that stuff. They, they know who won. Right. But trying <laughs> to beat that stuff out of them, um, Telling kids over and over again, it's telling little boys it's okay to cry. Yeah, it is okay to cry. It's us okay not to cry and develop a toughness so you can have control of your emotions in times where someone, especially the powerful leader, needs to have a cool head, right? So there's just been years and years of of this stuff um, being fed to little boys. And then you see also the, the destruction of the family that really took off in the 70s and I am, I was born in 1980. And even when I was in first and second grade, it was extremely rare to have classmates that had divorced parents, right? It was like a very small percentage. It was almost non-existent in the early seventies. And, um, and just seriously, you're going to have like high 90, 95, 98% married back in the sixties and fifties. And that stuff, uh, has really caught up to us in the eighties and nineties. And so you have young men that are growing up in broken households and manhood is kind of a baton that's handed from one generation to the next because uh, so much of manhood is about learning to use your God given power to be productive, to protect, to build things. Right. And so there's skill associated with it and wisdom. And skill and wisdom are something that's transmitted from one individual to to the next. So if you remove dad, you remove uncles, you move uh, grandpas, then it's really hard for a man to learn to be what God has called him to be. And that's the case. So guys turn to the internet. If I don't know how to fix something in my car, I just Google, like, how do I replace the alternator on this? And then there's some old dude on there who's like, it's, they always say the same thing. This is super easy. You're like, no, it's not. <laughs> I've never done this before. <laughs> um, I actually took my alternator off once. A friend talked me through it uh, over the phone and I put it back on backwards and actually drove the car for like a day. Totally ripped the belt <laughs> up. Um, but anyway, so we, we turned to like YouTube to, to learn all sorts of things. And so now yeah. they're turning to YouTube to learn how to be a man. So like there's channels like charisma on command. This is a pretty pretty mm-hmm. good channel. Uh, I think it will make you overthink all of life, but it's how how to be a good conversationalist, how to how to take uh, an insult with grace, how to stand your ground. You know, here's one single tip that'll make you likable right from the get go. You know, it's all that sort of stuff. <laughs> yeah, right? yeah, and it's actually really positive, very popular um, channel, and guys turn to it and they find guys like Jordan Peterson, who has this fatherly older uncle. Uh, Way and he's speaking with confidence, and he doesn't hate them, and he's not telling them that to be ashamed of their strength or they need to be more like girls or anything like that. And and then they see guys like Tate, who's kind of like the um, the the over the top crazy version. You uh, know, this guy that's with beautiful women. Of course, guys want to have beautiful women. Right? Mm. Women want to feel beautiful. Don't you want a man that thinks you're beautiful? So I don't know, but there's scantily clad, you know, women, women that it would appear were <laughs> manipulated into being into that situation. Uh, and then, uh, Tate's got, you know, he appears to have all this money and everything. And I don't really know what's real or fake. there. It's so hard to tell with these influencers these days, but yeah. of course a guy wants to be successful. He wants to own things. He wants to be able to provide. And, um, and then Tate's kind of like changed in the last year or two to kind of pander to tough like nationalism and loving your country and loving your people and standing. Yeah, I, I kind of. He's he's like a really smart influencer. He knows how to play to the trends and all that stuff. Mm-hmm. Um, and so that's very attractive. It's very attractive. Like people want to be excellent, and um, but you know there's all this vileness attached to it, and. It's hard for women in particular, and and the guys that want to be liked by those women, to understand that that the violence of Tate is not the main thing that really attracts, um, that really attracts the kids to him. It, it, it is there's some of them, perhaps, like porn's everywhere. Like any kid, you want to go watch, like you want to see all that stuff. You want to go see naked women? You typed the wrong thing. You're going to see it online, right? Oh, it's because yeah. they like the scandalous nature of it. No, I think scandalous nature is all over the internet, and it was there long before Tate. I think it's it's the combination of that with this call to max m- masculine excellence, you know. And uh, of course, it's a reduced um, worldly masculine excellence. But boys want to be challenged. Men, you know, why do men climb mountains? Because they're big. They're there. Yeah. And I want to see if I can get to the top of it. That's it. So I think that's why these guys, that's kind of what's all swirling in in this uh, current conversation and the motivations. So there's a lot of things going on right now.
0: Yeah. Yeah, that's really good. So I guess in light of that, what can men, Christian men, uh, fathers, pastors, um, et cetera, what can we do about uh, sort of – the way that the culture has, uh, or I guess where we are in the culture, what can we do uh, as, as men and as Christians to sort of reclaim or at least take dominion over this area that seems to be really lacking um, in our culture?
1: Yeah. Um, well, number one is pursue excellence for the glory of God, right? Like Take your uh, health serious, uh, take your finances and vocational aspirations, serious, um, lead your family, be the sort of guy that can protect, the sort of guy that does provide The sort of guy that is, uh, living the, what a lot of people want now is to get married and have kids, believe it or not. A lot of these young men, they're like, they're recognizing that's good, but like, how do I, like, what's the model? How do I find that? You know? And, uh. And so I think um, that one is just really be the thing that everyone everyone's saying like, well, don't look up to Tate. We'll give him someone to to look up to. Um, be the sort of person that that young men will look up to, which is a guy that's disciplined, a guy with vision, a guy that's doing things. You don't have to be amazing in every way, but just a guy that's got some salt to him, some gravitas. And so I say that's number one. And then spend time with these boys, right? Like, um, like talk to them, listen to them, take their concerns serious. Don't, don't demean them. Don't, don't scream man up at people that don't know how to be a man. That's not going to help, you know, um, telling someone you need to fix it and they don't know how to fix it. You can scream as much as you want, but it's not going to get any results it's going to discourage people. Um, so I think actually make time for these young men, talk to them and impress them and say, you know, I, a lot of times when young men reach out to me and they want to meet, they're like, I'm trying to get married. I'm trying to meet a woman. And I'll say, hmm. that's cool. That's great. Can we, can we back up a little bit? Cause I want to talk about some other things. And I'll ask them a lot, like, tell me a little bit about your vocation. Like, what are you, what are you going after right now? What are the things that matter to you? And so I think a lot of these young guys, they need help. Um, getting kind of a, a drive in their life. Like uh, the point of life is, so wh- one area of, of slight rhetorical disagreement, I would have with Doug Wilson um, when it comes to this issue. And I, 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 I'm sure Doug and I don't disagree on this, but I would not say the purpose of like the, the, the story of the Bible is, uh, you know, kill the dragon, get the girl. I wouldn't say that. I would say it's, it's a uh, obey the king kill the dragon, get the girl. And I like to put mission at the, the motivation of the mission first. And, and mm. I get that from Ephesians 5. We like to say, oh, Jesus lays his life down for the church. Yeah. For what reason? What does right. it say? Right? To offer a bride to God without blemish. Like what's the ultimate motivation there? It's to give God glory to accomplish this mission that the Trinity set out to do. Um, it's not like the, the woman's still not the point of everything. It's the glory of God is, uh, the, the, you know, that's what it is about. And so I think helping young men get a sense of how will they live out the missio day, the mission of God, like, what does that look? What are your gifts, opportunities, and desires bring those all together and, and start to go after things like someone. So I've, I've worked in sales my entire life, sales or collections both for myself and for other people. I currently am a sales uh, manager and I, and I manage a, a lot of locations. And, um, and someone asked how I decided that. I didn't. I went to Citibank. I wanted to get married to Emily and I was an electrician and I sucked at it. So I quit. And then <laughs> I uh, got a job or I applied at Citibank and they I wanted to be a customer service person. I didn't want to do collections, but they didn't have any customer service positions and I needed money. So I said yes to the collection position and I ended up being really excellent at it. I was really good at it. And from that, uh, I I developed a career in collections and I made a whole lot of money doing that. And then the skills in collections are just um, thinking quick on your feet, keeping cool and calm, listening to people's internal motives, uh, understanding how to leverage those things towards a productive end. So that really opened up the door uh, to me um, being – a salesman. I actually had one of those things where I walked in. I was a temp at a publisher, and I walked in. I said, "I would like. I want to work here. I need you to hire me." And I kid you not, the sales manager is like, "Sell me this pen," <laughs> which is like uh, this, like uh, almost stereotypical. Um, way to, to, to test someone's sales ability. So you don't sell them on the pen, you sell them on what the pen does. Right. Like yeah. anyway. So then I got into sales and, and I've been good at it. I've been good at it. I don't, I've sold things that I've, I didn't even understand. I bought and sold Robert Pattinson's fan club some years ago, bought and sold lots of uh, Facebook pages, bought and sold six figures worth of stuffed animals. Stuffed animals. I bought them for a quarter a piece <laughs> and sold them for about $20, $25 a piece. It was a really good investment. Sold. Wow. I've sold probably about half a million comic books, um, tens of thousands of books I've sold. And I never thought of myself as a salesman when I was a younger man. And you kind of throw yourself into life and you find out what you're good at and you have kind of mentors along the way that say, hey – you know, I was mentored by a VP at Sally May when I worked in collections by them. And I learned a whole lot about how businesses actually ran, which was kind of a, a real wake up call. Um, <laughs> and so that's guys that come alongside and help these guys figure out their vocation. And and then women uh, are certainly attracted to a man that has a sense of purpose and all uh, kind of a clarity of where he's heading. It doesn't have to be perfect, but just a direction. And when you also have that mission clarity, it requires a lot of discipline, waking up. I mean, I started reading so many books back then. I had to read all those stupid servant leadership books and who moved my cheese and all those, the, the one minute manager, uh, because I wanted to be, I wanted to do a good job. And so I think men saying like, Hey, tell me a little bit about what's your habits. What do you work on? How are you staying in shape? How are you developing yourself towards a productive A career right now? What are you doing, guys? Will be captivated by it. No one's talking to him about that, and guys don't want to be weak. They don't want to be failures. Guys play video games because they can go conquer and win and develop skills and uh, have dominion over digital realms. Like, well, that's because that's what they're made to do. Now let's bring that into a productive realm, into the creational realm that actually matters. And I think if we start doing that, we'll capture a lot of young men's hearts pretty easily.
0: Yeah. Yeah. That's great. Well, brother, this has been great. I do have some listener questions, folks that uh, on Twitter and, uh, and elsewhere, that, that had some questions about uh, just, well, I have you on if you don't mind. Sure. Yeah. Um, first one was, what are some things that you do as a Christian man uh, to stay motivated in your walk with the Lord when things are hard or discouraging?
1: Well, when things are hard and discouraging, it's easy stay close to the lord right because that's where you get reminded of how how, how much you depended on on him hmm. uh, i think it's where things are are easy and things are going well that it's easy to forget uh but I, I, the basis of it is simple is you just have to have a devotional practice listening to the bible and, and praying and uh, going to church week after week you know, yeah. the the foundational stuff is go to public worship, come to public worship, ready to worship, right? Like, put your phone down, clear your mind, ask God to, like, help me participate, like sing the song, sing them loud, pray the prayers with them, listen to the sermon, ask yourself, you know, what is God telling me through this word delivered to me this day by by my pastor? Then if you're a family man, go home and talk to your kids. Like, what did you think about the sermon? What stuck out to you? Right. Uh, and then really, the, all that stuff that's that there's there's no uh silver bullet, it's uh, read the word, pray, and and stay in church and be involved. That's it. Well, if you're feeling bad, well, guess what? Um, it is life is um, is rough. It is, you know, it's like sometimes what like my wife was just telling me, she's really sad because my mother, who died two weeks ago or three weeks ago, wherever it's been now, um my mom was not just my mom, but it was my, one of my wife's, um, best friends. And, and now, uh, we're starting up school today for our children. And, uh, my mom was an educator and helped us with our homeschool and she's gone. And my wife's sad. And what can you do? She's gone. I can pray for her. I can read scripture with her, but this world, you're going to suffer. You're going to suffer. You're going to have pain because it is a fallen world. And that's why we look forward to the gospel. That's why we need the good news. So that's what I would say to whoever
0: asked that. Awesome. Yeah, that's great. Very good advice. Um, uh, Someone's asking, uh, obviously I think many of us care very much about regular family worship uh, and, and, you know, uh, daily devotions with our families. Um, Somebody's asking though for recommendations on doing that with older teenage kids. Um, in terms of keeping them interested and keeping them uh, engaged um, and wanting to pursue these things, you know, in a day and age where teenagers are very easily being distracted and they're being fought fought after.
1: Well, I just think what we do is we keep devotions really short what did I read last night? I read where we started Mark. We've, we've gone through first and second Samuel. We've gone through Ruth. We've gone through, I started in judges and I was like, ah, this is not probably for the little ones yet. Um, (laughs) but we went through Mark last night and we read through, uh, his baptism, Jesus's baptism. And it's like, so why, why is Jesus baptized? What's going on here? So, you know, you got the spirit descending like a dove. I was like, is it a dove or is that like, is that, you know, I ask hard questions. I'm like, no, it was like a dove. I'm like, exactly. And then, uh, but we talked about kind of the the perils of really the water over the spirit over the waters of baptism, like the spirit over the waters of creation, and then God making Adam, and then Adam going into this paradise, and then God coordinating Jesus, "You are my son, who I'm well pleased in," and then Jesus immediately being driven by the by the Spirit into the desert to be challenged by the devil and just had this long conversation about it. But by long, I mean like 15 minutes. We don't do, we don't spend a ton of time. Like these people, they'll do like 45 minutes of family devotions. Like, yeah, my, I I don't want to do that either. You know, Um, I would, if I was like eating dinner with you, I'd be polite, but I'd be like, man, it's intense. So keep it short. um, Keep it focused. uh, Stay, stay interesting. Ask them a couple questions. And Mm -hmm. sometimes teenagers just got a lot of. Hormones pumping through them and they're going to be a bit cranky and just weather the storm. But I think just – I think a lot of of Reformed Baptists I notice this in and and people that are new to the Reformed faith, they really try to create um, something that's near to a worship service and family devotions. I think that's a bad idea. Um, I read something generally from a historical narrative part of scripture because I have lots of young kids and it's hard Mm -hmm. for them to track with the didactic portions, like say like something like Ephesians would be a little hard for that. And then I, uh, read it and I'll say what stuck out to you, you know? Wow. And then some will talk and then I'll go ahead and, um, suggest like a couple points that I see and I'll, I'll go from there and to see what happens. And you just, over time, it cumulatively adds up to your kids knowing scripture. And, um, what was I talking about? Oh, we are talking about, uh, how 40 is associated with uh, judgment because Jesus mm-hmm. is driven into the wilderness. He's there for 40 days. And, uh and then I, I heard my daughter hop on on the computer. and We have a server that some of the kids at our church are on that they play like Minecraft or something together. And she was like, "Jocelyn, what's the number forty mean in scripture?" <laughs> <laughs> so she's just that stuff adds up. So I just, that's, yeah, I think that's all there is to it.
0: Yeah, that's great. My um, my son's seven, and I wish I had started much sooner. I didn't start doing regular family worship until you know five, six years old, and and yeah. I regret. I regret that deeply, but um, it's amazing uh, start as soon as you can and, and continue uh, be persistent and diligent with it. Uh, we, again, we only do 15 minutes, maybe sometimes he has questions and it ends up being longer, but it's typically driven by, by him. Um, mm-hmm. uh, so yeah, that's great. That's great. Um, in terms of, uh, cause you're a pastor in by vocational, it seems um, in terms of, uh, sermon prep, what, what does sermon prep look like to you? Someone wants to know.
1: So I, uh, I plot all my sermons out nine months at a time. Uh, so sometimes it can dip down to six months. Sometimes that can be all the way out a whole year. So I'm all the way out to April of next year right now in my, Mm -hmm. what I plotted out. And because I'm bivocational, I have to do that. So I'll take a day or two. And I'll decide, so we switch on and off between New Testament, Old Testament. And um, so what do we have? We have, I start Ruth this week. That'll be four weeks. Then there is a short topical series on kind of our foundational commitments at our church. And then we're in Colossians for, oh, you know what? It's, It's Ruth, then Colossians, then that foundational series then it's advent for four weeks and then it's the book of judges for who knows how long i think (laughs) at least into april and um so i'll plot that out and then i'll buy my commentaries so i I read matthew henry and john calvin and everything and i have been doing that since i was 19 and then i'll get usually one or two semi-modern commentaries especially on the um more technical language stuff. And I'll usually read those before I do the study. So I've like with Ruth, I've kind of dived in and read a bunch of commentaries already. And then the week of I'll um, read the book a bunch like Sunday night, Monday, Tuesday, I'll just read it over and over and over again and think of major themes. Then around Thursday, I'll start sketching out like what I think is the main main topics, main points I want to hit in that passage for my people um, because there's so much you could talk about. I don't try to talk about everything. And then um, Friday afternoon, I'll start to kind of outline a little bit. Saturday, I'll write half of it. And then Sunday morning, I wake up at like 4 or 5 a.m. and I finish it on Sunday. Um, So that's how I do it. Uh, But I'm always in sermon prep. I'm always thinking about it. I also think a lot of people like, I just don't buy people I do 20 hours, 40 hours of sermon prep. I probably do like six hours, right? Like actual writing time. But if you count all the time I was reading those commentaries way back, I'm sure it's more than that. But, you know, I'll listen to commentaries uh, and sermons while I'm on, you know, I do about 30 to hour of zone two um, uh, uh, exercise on the treadmill and I'll listen to a bunch of stuff then. Um, so I'm, I'm way more kind of free flowing with it, but I'd say like in a week, like actually typing is like six hours, but I'm always stewing on it, right? I'm stewing on the hypostatic union right now. in the person of Christ, because when I go to uh, Australia here in about four weeks, I have to teach an entire conference on it. And of course I know that stuff, but not well enough to just sit down and give a lecture on the hypostatic union without being (laughs) a heretic, you know? So I'll, I'll, um, so, but I'm always, I think one way to do it is to think long-term, which is a requirement if you're bivocational, because I don't want to be reacting. I, I don't want to like, so I always outline the whole book months before I teach it. And, uh, and I rarely change unless I realize like I got something wrong. So that's a little bit on how I do it.
0: Yeah, that's great. Yeah, that's great. Uh, I found, um, and, and not a sponsor but I, I found that uh using logos bible software is incredibly helpful um, i have the reform package and having access to all the commentaries i can think of um, very very useful and very quick so you know being able talk, to just, search
1: just, to them today at two about two o'clock they want to sponsor our uh, conference so i guess yeah but I, yeah. yeah maybe i get some the, free stuff out of it
0: you know i i recommend it we did um uh for the last 3 years I did another podcast called Distilling Theology and um and they sponsored us uh two different times which is the only reason I have the software <laughs> but it's been wow. great. Yeah. That's
1: cool. All
0: right man, well uh last question um from uh, a friend of ours does drinking pink Moscato affect your credibility at all? He wants to know.
1: <laughs> only with weak men. <laughs> only with weak men. <laughs> yeah, no. I uh so generally, my go-to is a a Pinot Grigio or Noir. Uh, if I'm going to drink a wine, that's what I'm going to do. But every once in a while, um, that the the Moscato's got a real nice um, different taste to it. So yeah. uh, and 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 sometimes the pink is a little sweeter. I don't like sweet wines ever, almost ever. But every, when I do, I'll, I'll grab like a Moscato. I don't care if it's green or pink, but yeah, I, I had a pink Moscato and uh, people made a big deal about it. <laughs> it was funny. <laughs> it was like when I went to Unicorn World, I took my two daughters to Unicorn World, which is like this crazy unicorns everywhere. They they, they uh, get this, uh, the conference center downtown, you can ride unicorns, you can get a picture with the unicorn, you can jump in the unicorn sort of ball pit or whatever. And then, uh, so I took my girls there because I love them. And it's like pictures of me, like with (laughs) unicorns and my daughters. And someone said, this is a very foster thing. And I was like, yeah, I am okay. I do care with my daughters. What do I care? Right. It makes my daughters happy and we connect. And uh, so, yeah, I know the entire soundtrack inside and out to the greatest showman um, because (laughs) those girls love that soundtrack. But yeah. um, but yeah, I I do think uh, a Moscato is fine. And uh, if it hurts your credibility with everyone, that's – you don't want to be a friend with someone that's against pink Moscato, right? Amen. You don't want to be a friend <laughs> with someone that – that's all they drink, though. That's
0: so, <laughs> true. It's all about
1: having the right
0: balance. Perfectly balanced. <laughs> well, that's great, man. Um, yeah, I'm going to have to learn about this, this unicorn thing. I, I have a daughter on the way, so – Dude, uh, it, it was such a rip future. off.
1: <laughs> it was a rip off. I spent so much money, and I was like, "You got to be." Kidding. They had the time of their life, but I was like, <laughs> "This is genius." They like look so cool. I can send you the video, uh, and then you hop in, and then you're like, "I was like, how much is it for pictures?" And they're like, "It's forty dollars per picture with the kid or <gasps> something." It was way. I was like, "Yeah." Like, what did I pay? To, <laughs> I paid just to walk in here to pay you more money. Yeah. And, and I thought, you know, mad respect. You got me here. I'm not going to do it, but you did get me here. So, I mean, I, I'm sure I paid a couple hundred dollars that day, but it was really funny pictures and a, and a lot of good memories. So whatever. Yeah, I guess it's worth it.
0: Hey, I'm, I'm sure they won't forget it.
1: <laughs> <That's> <laughs> great. I know I won't.
0: Uh, well, thanks so much for coming on guys. If you want to, um, if you guys want to see this episode and not just hear it, you can head on over to Patreon and search for the Serrated Edge. Uh, video content will be uploaded there, and uh, also uh, follow follow me on social media. Just search for the Serrated Edge; you'll find it. And guys, remember Proverbs 12.1, Whoever loves instruction loves knowledge, but he who hates correction is stupid.